he's finally gone from office. The Republican Senate are all Trumpists. Does it still make sense to have him go on trial in the Senate? Can he be convicted? I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shot. Why should the Senate even bother? Trump is out of the White House. He's gone. He's not in power anymore. This time, with bipartisan support, the House voted to impeach him for an unprecedented second time. Isn't a trial in the Senate now really uh, playing to just partisan politics and not a carrying out of impartial justice? Not at all, according to our guest, former president of the National Lawyers Guild, Marjorie Cohn. She's written about these and other questions about the former president being put on trial for high crimes and misdemeanors. Why should it happen now that he's gone? What exactly are the alleged crimes? And even if he were found guilty, what would the point be? If he were convicted of crimes, that would be the first time any president has been. Might it not be best just to let it go and to seek unity? Marjorie Cohn, thanks for being with us once again on Keeping Democracy Alive. Thanks for having me, Bert. Marjorie Cohn is Professor Emerita at Thomas Jefferson School of Law and former president of the National Lawyers Guild, deputy secretary general of the International Association of Democratic Lawyers, and a member of the advisory board of Veterans for Peace. Her most recent book is Drones and Targeted Killing, Legal, Moral, and Geopolitical Issues. Well, I want to start with a tweet I read from Rob Reiner. I don't read tweets very much, but he said, When Donald Trump is tried for inciting a deadly insurrection to overthrow the U.S. government, Republican senators won't care about facts or truth. They'll be making a political calculation. Does the jury of senators have to vote based on convincing evidence that laws were broken? Can political considerations legally affect their vote? Marjorie. Yes, they can. And as Alexander Hamilton said in the Federalist Papers, impeachment is a political proceeding. Uh It's not really a legal proceeding, although the impeachment clause of the Constitution talks about impeachment for high crimes and misdemeanors. But it is at bottom, at actually, uh, you know, basically a political proceeding. So they don't have to strictly follow statutes, Mm. criminal statutes, Um, although the article of impeachment that's pending against Donald Trump that the House voted for, um, incitement of insurrection, is is also a crime under the federal codes. Well, as we all know, Republican senators, 45 of them, said that a Senate trial is unconstitutional now that he's out of office. What's the truth? It's not unconstitutional, and most legal scholars are unified in saying that once a president is out of office, or any federal official for that matter, um, he or she can still be impeached. Now, they can't be removed from office because they're already out of office, but they can be disqualified from ever holding federal office again. And interestingly, um, in this vote... Of 55 to 45, um, which which lost the motion right. in the Senate to almost the first thing they did to uh, say that it's unconstitutional to try a former president. Um, what that does is two things. First of all, it signals that there are not, not enough uh, Republicans 
to vote for conviction. They need 17 right. to join with the the, uh, the, uh, Repu- the Democrats to have the two-thirds majority. But it also says that a lot of these Republicans who voted that uh, the Senate trial would be unconstitutional, that gives them political cover when they vote against conviction because they can say, uh-huh. well— you know, there was a lot of evidence, but, uh, you know, the Constitution won't allow it. And, you know, there's precedent for this. Um, the uh, case of um, U.S. versus Nixon, uh-huh. which is not Richard Nixon, but it was a judge, Nixon, in 1993, mm-hmm. where the Supreme Court did not get involved to overturn a uh, an impeachment of a former official. This, uh, this uh, Secretary of War Belknap quit just before... Um, you know, they were they were going to vote to impeach. And they actually did impeach him after he left office. The, the Senate acquitted him in the trial. Um, but that is precedent for the Supreme Court. And Clarence Thomas joined in that opinion. So I think I don't think that the Supreme Court is going to want to get involved mm. in this issue about whether or not a uh, a former president can be impeached. Interesting. Good to know. And uh, again, this is not a uh... Uh, strictly legal situation. It's it's political at base, as you say. But in terms of whether or not somebody's found guilty, as I understand it, there are three commonly held standards of proof. Preponderance of evidence, clear and convincing evidence, and beyond a reasonable doubt. I wonder what the standard would be in a Senate trial, or is it all just pff, up for grabs? H- have they defined... Well, it is a- Go ahead. It is. It's up for grabs, Bert, because uh, in, a, in a criminal trial, it's got to be proof beyond a reasonable doubt because you're going to you know, take somebody's liberty or life. In a civil case, it's preponderance of the evidence, which is about 51%. But there are certain issues that have to be decided by clear and convincing evidence, which is kind of somewhere between uh, uh, preponderance of the evidence and beyond a reasonable doubt. But the Constitution says nothing about a standard of proof in an impeachment trial. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Senate makes the rules. There are there there are no limitations on uh, impeachment. It's up to the Senate. The only thing the Constitution really says um, about uh, a court getting involved is that the Chief Justice would preside over a Senate trial of a president. Now Trump is no longer the president, so uh, Patrick Leahy is going to preside, and uh, he has presided over a number of uh, of matters and uh, is you know has never been accused of being anything other than impartial oh wow that's really interesting to know uh i've always liked senator Leahy, i must say so let's go through through some of the laws that are allegedly or were allegedly broken five people died might this bring up 18 usc section 373 and what is that law that's a federal statute, uh, solicitation to commit a crime of violence, uh, in this case murder, solicitation mm-hmm. to commit murder, and uh, it's a crime to solicit, command, induce, or endeavor to persuade another person to commit a felony involving a threat or use of force. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so if the prosecutors can prove that whomever killed the Capitol Police officer, Brian Sicknick, uh, was in- incited to violence at the rally where Trump exhorted his followers uh, to fight, uh, etc., he could be convicted of uh, inciting murder. One would think, and I I think it's uh, interesting that, uh, you know, maybe there's 
evidence that can be found, and there's still, as of this moment, a couple of weeks before it begins. So the discovery period is, uh, they must be very active, I imagine. Might there be evidence that this violent insurrection was being planned even before the election? And could that be introduced to the court of the Senate? Um, yes, absolutely. I mean, all during the campaign, uh, Trump preemptively um, said that there was voter fraud. And, uh, you know, in tw- even tw- back to 2016, the election against Hillary Clinton, he was talking about a rigged election. Right. So he was really laying the groundwork preemptively um, for this and uh, with false claims of voter fraud. There's never been any substantial, yeah. no less any claims of voter fraud that have been sustained. Every single court that uh, even even courts and Republican judges and the Supreme Court refused to find voter fraud. But uh, yes, I think that goes way back. And I think that he's been uh, building toward this for years. So that could possibly be introduced as evidence. They're going to have a lot to go through and decide which to focus on. And there is one article of impeachment this time. And in that, uh, I believe it references uh, 18 U.S.C. sections 2383 and 2384. What are those? Um, yes, two, uh, 2383 is incitement of rebellion or insurrection, and it provides for 10 years in prison for anyone who incites any rebellion or insurrection against the authority of the United States or the laws thereof or gives aid or comfort thereto. Wow. Um, so... Uh, and and if he is convicted of this crime in in a court of law, um, mm. Trump would be incapable of holding any future office, U.S. Uh, federal office. Then um, 18 U.S.C. Section 2384 is seditious conspiracy, um, and uh, that is conspiring to oppose by force the authority of the government and by force to prevent, hinder, or delay the execution of any law of the United States. Seditious conspiracy carries a 20-year prison sentence. Both of those seem pretty uh, clear-cut to me, and yet it's fascinating to me that, that, that the Senate, the Republican majority, well, all of the senators can choose to pay attention to that case, that evidence, or not. Is that right? So even if, I mean, it, it seems there's a preponderance of evidence for those laws being broken. They can just. I'd say there's more than a preponderance. <laughs> there's overwhelming evidence. If you look at um, what Trump did, I mean, you know, yes, during the rally on the sixth, right. you know, exhorting his followers to fight, 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 and uh, you know, eventually they walked down the street, and that's what they did. Uh, but also on that same day during the siege, after they had the insurrectionists had broken into the Capitol, and by the way. Um, you know, they were basically led into the Capitol yes. um, and uh, could have killed half of Congress and were, were looking to hang Mike Pence. Yes. But um, during that during the siege, um, Trump called uh, Tommy Tuberville, a Republican from Alabama, and in a in a 10 minute conversation, Trump, uh, you know, begged him to make additional objections to the electoral vote count. And Trump apparently resisted calling in the National Guard, who ultimately arrived hours after the insurrection was underway. Um, and of course, they quickly found the offices of Nancy Pelosi right. and James Clyburn. And they had they had been given tours oh, by yeah. uh, Republican, uh, you know, in, people who helped incite the conspiracy, Republican 
lawmakers the day before. They'd been given t- group tours, and other, you know, several uh, Congress people noticed that because there it was not open to the public. The, the Capitol has not been open to the public because of the COVID right. pandemic. So this is also part of it. It I, I can't, you know, I, I am not a Republican. I am not in the U.S. Senate. But when I think about... If all this evidence, <clears throat> excuse me, gets presented for the world to see, if they don't, and, and you know he's obviously guilty, if they don't convict, I, I think I'm guessing here that you know being any uh, elected official, one looks at, mm, is this going to help me get elected or hurt me get reelected, and that that can be the entire standard for their uh, uh, decision on this. I, I can't help but wonder how this would play out. Imagining the, the American public, which is pretty split, it's amazing to me, but they are, if they say, okay, he did these things which are clearly against the law and, and major violations, did you think, I mean, I'm thinking as time goes on, I may be naive and optimistic, that as time goes on during the trial, uh, there'll be less, those 17 will be less inclined to stick with the president. Any guess on your part, Marjorie? You know, I think it's likely that the five who voted to proceed with the trial right. will probably uh, uh, vote to convict. I, I, I expect they will. Sure. I think it's going to be very hard to get more, no less 12 more. I don't think he will be convicted. Um, and uh, and this is a political calculation. I mean, it's only yeah. a political calculation. They want to, these Republicans have walked in lockstep with Trump all the way through in spite of all of his blatant lawbreaking and inhumane, cruel policies. Yeah. They want to tap into his base. Um, they want to be reelected. So it's crass political self-interest. <laughs> um, and uh, And, you know, if he is not convicted... Uh, this is going to show that, uh, you know, that presidents are above the law. It will show, um, you know, that he has impunity. But I have to say that uh, once he is acquitted by the Senate, because yeah. they won't get two-thirds to convict him, then uh, many of them are intending to invoke a procedure under the 14th Amendment, Section 3, which says no one shall hold any federal office who engages in insurrection or rebellion against the United States. And they can invoke that 14th Amendment uh, by a 51% majority. They don't need two-thirds. Now, the question is, who's going to enforce that? Um, What will the courts do? It hasn't been used before, but that's a fallback position um, if and when they fail to convict him of the uh, article of impeachment, incitement of insurrection. I wonder if the Republican senators are aware of that or care about that, uh, you know, if they're knowledgeable about that, that's that would, I would think, be uh, something that they might want to pay attention to, that there are other ways to prevent, at least legally, prevent them from, from holding a public office. So even if they do, it could be said that they're aiding and abetting, I suppose. Many but, of them have already aided and abetted by yeah. by giving tours the day before, um, there has been uh, quite a bit of evidence of Congress people, uh, you know, um, Hawley famously giving the, the raised fist to the right. insurrectionists as they stormed the Capitol. Right. Um, so there is, and, and this 14th Amendment, Section 3, would apply to them as well, not just right. the president. 
So I'm sure they're aware of it. They're probably thinking, well, we're not too worried about it because it's never been used before. And, uh, you know, the courts may not uh, probably will will convince the courts not to enforce it. But that 14th Amendment, that uh, if, if that were invoked, that would be outside of the Senate, right? Wouldn't that wouldn't that fall into uh, the the judiciary system? That would be invoked. That would be um, fifty-one senators voting uh-huh, for it uh-huh. and a majority of the House of Representatives voting for it, which very well may happen. Sure. Uh, not for sure, but very well might. Well, and then when Trump contests it, then uh, you know, then then it, it would he would he would file a lawsuit in the court and it would go up. Uh, you know, through the courts. The the most important thing here, uh, well, there are two things, really. Okay. One is the whole idea of impunity, that yes. no one's above the law, even the president. And the second thing is disqualification to hold future office, because Trump has been talking about running again <laughs> in 2024. He very well could win. He's got a mm-hmm. very strong, loyal base who, uh, you know, made up of racists, evangelicals, uh, you know, libertarians, and, uh, you know, people who just uh, think he's terrific, you yeah. know, and uh, so he very well might win. So it's it's really important if he's not uh, convicted in the Senate, which I don't think he will be because they don't have the numbers, to invoke this uh, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment to disqualify him from holding office. And um, we talked about 18 U.S.C. Sections 2383 and 2384, and uh, also 373, and those are federal charges that could be brought against him in criminal court outside Uh of the whole congressional process. And I had been thinking all along, as had many people, that Trump would pardon himself um, from any future liability. He can't pardon himself uh, under the Constitution for state crimes, but he could for federal crimes, although that's never been tested either. No president has ever pardoned himself. But as far as we know, he hasn't done that. And the reason I say as far as we know is he could have what's called a pocket pardon, where he secretly pardoned himself and his kids from future from uh, criminal liability for what they did while he was in office and uh, you know he might just pull it he might have that in his pocket and he might pull it out um, if and when charges are filed now there are already uh, if not charges certainly investigations pending in state court yes. Cyrus Vance the district attorney oh, yes. in Manhattan Love him. Uh, with his you know all of his uh, you know fraud and and economic shenanigans um, so he's not out of the woods, but you know Trump has had so many lawsuits filed against him, and he always seems to worm out of them because he he you know appeals to his base for more and more money. Um, I, I heard that he's trying to raise two million dollars for a presidential library. It's the biggest joke in the world. I don't think he's ever read a book except for Mein Kampf, which used to be on Apparently his bedside he did table. Read, yes. I don't know that he's ever read the Constitution, for that matter. No, probably um, not. And also, when he was raising money uh, like crazy to defend the election against being stolen by Joe Biden, um, you know, his his followers were giving him money, and that money was going to pay off his debts and to pad his coffers, give some money to the RNC and pad his coffers for, uh, you know, uh, future lawsuits against him and and maybe even a future uh, presidential run. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest is Marjorie Cohen, uh, former president of the National Lawyers Guild, professor emerita at the Thomas Jefferson School of Law. We're talking about the impeachment trial number two of uh, Donald Trump. So if he is not convicted, 
are, am I taxes going to go for his protection, for his uh, transportation, and other things like that? Yes, and his sizable pension as well. You mm. will be paying for that, as will I. Mm. And that's another reason to uh, to convict him uh, of uh, you know in, in the Senate because uh, he he is he is the biggest freeloader in the world. Oh. Um, and uh, he will continue to do that. <laughs> That's who he is. What about when Trump said, quote, when you catch somebody in a fraud, you are allowed to go by very different rules. That resulted in the attack, I think. I mean, it, it, suggesting it's a fraud and they could legally go by different rules. Is that also evidence? What about that statement? Yes, that's evidence as well. That's tantamount to saying the rules don't apply to you, followers, because uh, of this non-existent voter fraud. Um, and that's part of the incitement. Uh, you know, there's also other evidence as well. Um, the, there's an, uh, a, the uh, inspector general in the Justice Department, the inspector general is kind of like the watchdog mm-hmm. in every federal agency. It, it, it's an independent body. And the... Um, the inspector general is investigating efforts by Trump and um, Jeffrey Clark, a, a top federal law in, in enforcement official, to push other Justice Department officials to um, falsely say that there was a continuing fraud investigation to cast doubt on the election results. And uh, and Trump was uh, the New York Times reported that uh, he, Trump was said to have been consider, considering installing Clark as acting attorney general right. to carry out his scheme. So that's also um, part of this conspiracy, seditious conspiracy. Boy, it does seem like if there were an actual trial and it wasn't in the U.S. Senate, big a. a uh, pretty much an open and shut case. I mean, Mr. Trump, as the defendant, what he did and said on the morning of January 6th, is that direct evidence, which as such requires no inference, no interpretation? That is direct evidence. Came right out of his mouth. He called the election outcome this egregious assault on our democracy. He said we should stop the steal and keep the Democrats from fraudulently taking over our country. Um, he told his supporters to show strength, walk down to the Capitol. Right. You'll never take back our country with weakness. And uh, and he used the words fight or fighting 20 times. That's direct wow. evidence. It comes right out of his mouth. 20 times. I did not know that. I don't always listen to everything Trump says, and I don't have to for a while. Now, is retiring Ohio Republican uh, Rob Portman, is he one of the five that uh, supported it? Because he said Trump bears, quote, some responsibility for the pro-Trump mob that stormed the Capitol January 6th. So where is he in the uh, uh, lineup? Well, you know, I, I, you know... (laughs) I don't really know where he stands, but uh, he he could be, uh, you know, relenting a bit. Um, there's some responsibility. Yes, Trump did incite insurrection with his comment about they're going to go wild, the speech at the rally, the march to the Capitol. Um, and also Trump's campaign paid $2.7 million to people who planned the rally. Uh, that's pretty direct evidence. Maggie Mulvaney, who's the, the niece of Trump's former chief of staff, Staff Mick, Mick Mulvaney was uh-huh. paid 
$138,000 by the campaign through November 23rd, and she was listed on the on the March permit as the VIP lead for the rally. She worked as the Trump campaign's director of finance information uh, operations. And, you know, it's interesting because, um, Bert, this trial is going to start on February the 8th. Yes. Um, that's about, that's less than two weeks away. And, uh, you know, we were, I was just talking with my husband about, you know, if they wait longer, more evidence is going to come out. Uh, but they need to keep the momentum going. I don't think even, the, there's already overwhelming evidence. Even if more evidence comes out, that's not going to change the minds of most of these Republican senators. They really need to move on it. I understand why they made a deal. Chuck Schumer, the new majority leader in the mm. Senate, and Mitch McConnell, um, and, uh, you know, to, to uh, postpone it till February 8th, even though Nancy Pelosi delivered the article of impeachment on Monday, um, to give the Republicans time to get their stuff together and uh, to also um, give Biden a chance to get some of his uh, initial, you know, uh, initiatives through. Yeah, I personally, I think that that's a good strategy to help build the case. But, and this is not a legal question, a friend of mine, very wise friend, was saying, you know, Americans have short memories. January 6th, ah, oh, seems like a long time ago. Trump is gone. Who cares? And I wonder how that attitude might play into the uh, uh, trial that starts February 8th. Could it, I would think, given the time, that makes the case stronger. But I don't, I don't know. I mean, maybe people are going to think, eh, it's over. It's done. Who cares? What do you think? I think some people will think that, but a lot of, you know, people were watching in real time yeah. as the, this mob was storming the Capitol, breaking windows, um, killing uh. five people, and uh, and looking for Mike Pence to hang him from a noose yeah. because he did not do Trump's bidding and set aside the uh, the electoral votes for Biden. And those images are very vivid in people's minds. And, you know, one other thing I think we need to talk about here, sure. Bert, is the way that the police allowed this to happen, uh, regardless of who did what these these uh, pro these insurrectionists were given free reign to to go through the Capitol, destroy whatever they wanted, um, you know, hurt people. They could have planted a bomb. Um, and, uh, you know, some of them are being arrested, but now they're, uh, they're, there's consideration by the FBI and the Department of Justice not to charge all of the people who trespassed and broke into the Capitol illegally. Um, to contrast that, and these were largely white um, oh. insurrectionists, contrast that with last summer and the way the police and the National Guard used overwhelming force against the Black Lives Matter protesters. They used violence, they used tear gas, chemical weapons, rubber bullets, um, and uh, and they arrested, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people, just an overwhelming use of force. I think that's, you know, an example of blatant racism in this country. And you said that, uh, you know, the country's polarized, incredibly polarized. And uh, I don't think that the country has been this polarized no. since the Civil War. And that's a very, very disturbing thought. It really is, certainly. And, you know, but, but I, I just, I wonder, you know, if there are, if the Republican people who are defending the president in the Senate, the former president, former, got to say that, <laughs> defending the former yeah. president in, in the court, will they put up 
a legal argument, I wonder, and I wonder what reasons they'll give to not convict. I can't imagine. You're the legal beagle on this. What, what, what reasons can they say not to convict, given all this evidence? I think the, the, the uh, biggest reason that they're going to be citing, they already tipped their hand, and that is that it's unconstitutional to even hold the trial because he's no right. longer in office. And we right. talked about that, and I think that's going to be their main argument. But I think they're also going to say that Trump never told the people to at right. that rally, never told them, walk down the street, break into the Capitol, destroy property, hang Mike Pence, and uh, hurt or kill whoever you can. He didn't say those exact words, and therefore, uh, you know, uh-huh. it, it's, it's, uh, it, it was just, uh, you know, innocent, yeah. uh, innocent language that, that uh, you know, was firing up the crowd, but that he really didn't directly incite the insurrection. I think that's what you're going to hear. Uh, probably. Last question. What if they don't convict? Rem- what are the ramifications on the rule of law going forward? Well, there never has been a conviction of a president no. after impeachment in the Senate. And, and keep in mind that the House of Representatives impeaches, and that's already happened twice to Trump. He's yes. the first president that's been impeached twice. That's like an indictment. That's that's not the end of it. Then it goes to the Senate right. for an impeachment trial, yes. and that's what we're talking about. That's never happened. Um, I think you know that it will be good for the country to see this evidence video evidence and the evidence that's presented on television um, as the trial uh, proceeds. But I I just don't know how many minds it's going to change on either side because people are so locked in and so, um, you know, so polarized. But certainly, uh, you know, Trump has gotten away with so much law-breaking. And I'm not saying he's the first. I mean, uh, you know, Bush committed war crimes, and and so did Obama with his droning and his surveillance, etc. But uh, Trump has kind of taken it to a new level, (laughs) and so the impunity... Uh, is is really the most concerning thing that a you know this this signals to future presidents you can basically get away with murder and nothing will happen to you. As he said so long ago, if people are interested in following your work, uh, what can you point them to on that internet thing? My blog is marjoriecone.com. That's where my articles are, books, videos, radio interviews like this one, etc. I'm sure we'll be talking again in the future. Thank you so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Let's hope we can keep democracy alive. (laughs) I hope so. Thanks. As we move from the problems of Trump to the opportunities of Biden, among the incredible number of urgent items on his plate is China. Are there any good options for the new president? Can we focus on human rights while improving trade relations with China? What policies might serve us and what might cause them to react aggressively? What is the risk of Biden looking like we're being pushed around by Beijing? 
With us today to discuss President Biden's China conundrum is Michael Clare, the Five College Professor Emeritus of Peace and World Security Studies at Hampshire College and a senior visiting fellow at the Arms Control Association. Michael Clare is the author of 15 books, the latest of which is All Hell Breaking Loose, The Pentagon's Perspective on Climate Change. And he writes regularly for Tom Dispatch and The Nation. Well, thanks for being with us, Michael. And you write that... China is in a more powerful position than ever to dictate the rules of the world economy, and that on so many fronts, dealing with China poses an enormous conundrum for America's new leadership team. Why is that, and how severe is the challenge of managing U.S. relations with China? Well, so here we are at the start of a new administration that wants to, you know, change everything about American policy. And we face a foreign rival, China, that is more powerful than ever and uh, poses uh, challenges on multiple fronts for the United States, Mm -hmm. economically, militarily, diplomatically, technologically. I mean, let's face it, China is a rising power and We haven't faced a challenger like this throughout American history. The Soviet Union was a powerful military threat, no question about it. And Russia retains the nuclear weapons Mm -hmm. from the Soviet era. But China has not only military might, but also economic and technological might that the Soviet Union and Russia do not possess. So this is a unprecedented challenge for the United States. Oh, great. Just what a new president wants to hear. The imperial struggle for control of the far western Pacific has really been with us since the late 19th century. As you point out, the strategically important waterways of the western Pacific, such as the East and South China Seas, constitute China's very front door. So rightfully belong under Chinese control for the United States, They represent the far western edge of its security zone and so cannot be surrendered to Beijing. From this strategic impasse springs the very real possibility of minor incidents escalating into World War III. And you note that not since Japan's imperial expansion in the 1930s and early 40s has Washington faced such a formidable foe in that part of the world. And we all know how that turned out. Might the horse be already out of the barn? For Biden? Well, as you put it that way, yes. Uh, And we're talking about today or tomorrow because the U.S. has deployed forces in these dangerous waterways, has been doing that under the Trump administration, very provocative naval and air maneuvers in the South China Sea, in the waters around Taiwan. And it seems that the Biden administration is perpetuating Uh these uh, provocative naval and air maneuvers at this moment. Uh, Right now, the Theodore Roosevelt carrier strike group is in the South China Sea, Mm. an area claimed by China. At the same time, China is trying to send a signal to Biden uh, that it it, it intends to act tough in this area by sending its own forces into the South China Sea and sending 
air and naval forces around Taiwan. So you have a very dangerous mix at this very moment. So it's not just COVID that could kill us. <laughs> the Department of Defense has shifted away from terrorism being the main perceived threat to seeing long-term economic competition as the rising threat. And you point out that the entire military establishment has been substantially refocused and re-engineered from acting as a counter-terror and counter-insurgency force into one armed, equipped, and focused on fighting the Chinese and Russian militaries. If so, what does that box uh, Biden in? It seems to be that the uh, current defense leadership uh, is not backing away from that. Uh, Lloyd General Lloyd Austin, who was sworn in as Secretary of Defense just a few days ago, has testified that he will continue along the path set by the Trump administration under its national security policy of uh, viewing China as America's foremost threat to national security and in taking whatever military means are necessary to counter the Chinese threat. So there seems to be a continuation of the Trump policy under Biden. Well, that's that's very concerning. And I find it interesting that economic competition is the rising threat, whereas the, the terrorists, you know, from ISIS and al-Qaeda, various different groups like that, they attacked physically Americans, and that's that's not happening here. How is it that, you know, economic competition is now the biggest threat? That seems sort of surprising. Well, it's not just economic by itself. It's economic technological uh, growth uh, that China presents. Now, when I talk about this, I'm I'm speaking how this is perceived by policy elites in Washington. I'm not speaking for myself, you understand. Oh, I do. <laughs> yeah, so uh, China's growing economic and technological prowess is viewed as a military threat because they're able to invest more and more money in modernizing their right. armed forces, acquiring new technology, and and building a, a, an armed forces that could challenge the United States. Mm. Uh, also, the economic growth of China is giving China the opportunity to forge new relations with countries throughout Asia and beyond Asia, yes, in Africa, absolutely. in Latin America. Yep. So uh, it's a geopolitical threat. Yeah, geopolitical doesn't always lead to, you know, boom, boom, you know, war and things like that. But uh, oftentimes it does, unfortunately. And outgoing Secretary of Defense Mark Esper said he had three main strategic policies regarding China. Quote, the weaponization of advanced technologies, the strengthening of military ties with friendly nations surrounding China. In other words, the goal is to uh, uh, encircle China with hostile U.S.-oriented alliance, sending top-grade weapon systems to Taiwan, strengthening ties to India as well. And uh, Secret Secretary of State nominee Blinken praised Trump's approach, saying, as we look at China, there's no doubt it poses the most significant challenge to U.S. interests. And as you said, uh, 
Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin got not a lot of reaction when he was speaking at the Senate Armed Services Committee to what he claimed was his number one priority to better equip U.S. forces to engage in a future war with China. He said, if confirmed, I will focus the Department, the Department of Defense on China. What does this say, perhaps, about the power of the military-industrial complex in the face of mounting pressure to cut the bloated defense budget pegged at $705 billion for the current year, uh, excluding off-line items, in order to finance desperately needed investments in healthcare infrastructure, poverty reduction, and climate adaptation? So is this the military-industrial complex saying, hey, we got to find somebody to... You know, some enemy to uh, to keep us in power and keep the money rolling in. Well, you know, if if I were defense contractors and looking at the Biden list of priorities, he he said his top priorities are climate change, coronavirus uh, relief, economic relief at home, addressing institutionalized racism in this country. Uh, you know, helping out the poor and uh, ad- addressing the economic effects of coronavirus. That's what he said are his top priorities and, and rebuilding America's infrastructure. You don't hear in that list building up the military uh, for going to war with China. So uh, if you follow those that list of priorities, you would think that the natural outcome would be to take funds from the Defense Department and that huge budget of $705 billion for for 2021 and say, couldn't we use some of that money to rebuild America's uh, falling apart infrastructure and to uh, make sure that everybody gets vaccinated for COVID and to redress some of the economic inequalities in America? Uh, that would be the natural reaction, it seems to me, or at least, you know, if you see that through the eyes of these defense contractors, right. they must be thinking that. Oh. And, and and so, you know, the natural outcome would be to say to ring, uh, you know, the alarm bells, China, 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 China. Hmm. I wonder how much power they think they have over Biden. I mean, the the weapons contractors uh, have been living quite nicely, def- you know, with us defining national security as they would like it in terms of weapons, weapons, weapons. Uh, but I, I would think national security could be defined a little bit differently, like real national security. But I wonder if the military industrial complex believes it has as much power over Biden as they've had with most prior presidents. Do you have any sense of that? Well, the truth of the matter is that that the military industrial complex has very uh, successfully uh, distributed a lot of its production uh, into the districts of Democratic as well as Republican Congress people and senators. It's distributed throughout the United States. So a lot of uh, liberal so-called Right. Uh, liberal members of Congress who might support Biden on on a whole lot of issues also have large defense contractors sure. uh, in their states. Oh, yeah. e- even in New England, which oh. is, uh, you know, a largely blue area where I live in Massachusetts, and mm-hmm. 
neighboring Rhode Island has major military facilities. Connecticut has huge military facilities. Maine has the biggest naval yes. uh, uh, construction site, Bath Ironworks. So the Congress people in those states are largely beholden yes. to the military industrial complex and, and won't vote against military spending. Yeah, I've seen that all too much. Our former uh, member of Congress, uh, Carol Shea Porter, was pretty liberal, but when it came to funding the uh, Portsmouth Naval Shipyard, which repairs nuclear submarines, oh no, we can't consider uh, retrofitting and you know changing, making new jobs to build, say, high-speed railroad cars uh, out, out of this stuff. No, we just got to go down the line with that. Yeah, it's been frustrating. The uh, the weapons contractors knew what they were doing when they placed their facilities all over the country, including in, uh, obviously, democratic areas. For those of you have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about President Biden's China conundrum. Our guest is Professor Michael Clare, who's written about it a lot and who knows defense stuff. And I just saw this in the news very recently. The Biden administration has imposed a temporary freeze on U.S. arms sale to Saudi Arabia and United Arab Emirates. I'm rather pleased with that, but no doubt that is not going down well with the weapons lobby. Does this add pressure to to China as the target, as you know, the one that has to be uh, in the headlines and in the news? Well, those particular arms sales are uh, on hold because of very successful activism by human rights groups. Yeah. Because in many cases, the weapons that we've been selling to Saudi Arabia have been used to attack, supposedly to, to attack the rebels, the Houthi rebels in Yemen. But we know very well uh, that the Saudis have been bombing indiscriminately uh, and in, in Yemen with many, many civilians being killed, children uh, included. Uh, so human rights groups have successfully mounted a campaign to convince uh, legislators and, and the president to cut off arms sales to Saudi Arabia for that reason. Sure. Uh, so, you know, that's a good thing that's happened. Oh, I think so, yeah. Uh, but I, so I, I, wonder... I, I don't see a direct tie to China there, but plenty of other stuff is going to be uh, come down the line that will be China-oriented. Well, the weapons contractors, if they're not making these, you know, cool things for uh, guidance systems and whatever for the Saudi Arabians, they got to sell their stuff somewhere, so might as well focus on uh, China as a, a way to, to drum up a business. And you talked about human rights. The current government of China is highly authoritarian. Its record on human rights is not a good one. They have literal concentration camps for the Uyghurs in Western China, and people who care about human rights are appropriately making some noise about that. And it seems the suppression of civil liberties in Hong Kong is in its early, very frightening stages. We have to do something about this, no? I mean, how, do, how does Biden deal with this stuff? I think that's absolutely true, that uh, what uh, the Xi Jinping regime has been doing with respect to the Uyghurs is utterly reprehensible, and the crackdown on uh, civil liberties in Hong Kong equally so. 
And I think it's appropriate for the Biden administration to raise this with Chinese leaders and express uh, our outrage over that and uh, to take steps, for example, uh, to punish companies, uh, including American companies, that have contributed to the uh, surveillance and uh, targeting of Uyghurs. It, it, it appears that some American companies, and as along with Chinese and other companies, have supplied technology, the facial recognition technology used to identify Uyghurs, then mm. uh, targeted them for arrest and incarceration, like you say. So I think it's absolutely appropriate to impose sanctions on those companies and otherwise punish China uh, for those activities. But that doesn't mean uh, that we can't take steps to cooperate with uh. China in other areas like climate change that are essential to our well-being. Have they indicated that they're interested in cooperating with regard to climate change? Because they've apparently been, you know, a uh, big polluter. Are they interested in working with us on that? Any indications? Absolutely. Uh, you know, China is now uh, taking the lead in the international community uh, in talking about taking steps to reduce its its own mm -hmm. uh, ca carbon emissions and to work with other states to do that. Now, how much of this is propaganda right. and how much of it's real has to be tested. Right. Uh, but the only way you could do that is by engaging with them in diplomacy. And that's what John Kerry's job is. Uh, he will be the country's climate envoy. And he has expressed a, a strong desire to meet with Chinese officials on this issue and to press them uh, for more information, but also to find where areas where there could be cooperation between the two countries. Oh, interesting. That's good to hear. Plus, he does have a little bit of experience with uh, at former Secretary of State, and he did quite well with that, I, I thought. Um, and, and since, as you say, Democrats as well as Republicans view China as a potent economic rival that could, in the very near future, overtake the U.S. to become the world's leading economic power. So aren't there options other than aggressive, militarized confrontation that might be more effective tools for the job? And do you think uh, uh, the Biden administration will pick up the right tools here? There certainly are. Of course, there are other options for dealing with a country like China. Uh, there are all kinds of uh, means of engagement during the Obama administration, there was something called uh, strategic or economic and security strategic talks. Uh -huh. I'm forgetting the exact title, but there were periodic uh, and, uh, periodic dialogues between senior U.S. officials, the Secretary of the Treasury, the uh, head of the Secretary of Defense, the Secretary of State would meet. Uh -huh on a regular schedule with their Chinese counterparts. And they set up working groups mm. of Chinese and American officials to look for areas of cooperation. And a lot came from that. There were exchanges, university to university exchanges on 
uh, electric cars, for example, mm. that sort of thing. So this is entirely possible. So sort Invo- of involving civil society as well, not just government, but corporations and uh, universities, think tanks, and the like. So sort of a constructive engagement, as Al Gore used to talk about. And I wonder about any kind of fear. I know the the right wing has already uh, started saying that oh, China owns Biden. They're gonna he's he's gonna look like a puppet to to uh, to the Chinese to uh, Xi Jinping. What about <laughs> concern about that? I mean, I guess you can't just blow these right wingers off. But uh, I wonder how much of a consideration that might be for the Biden administration. I'm sure they've given a lot of thought. Uh, But, you know, after all, uh, it was Donald Trump who talked about Xi Jinping as his friend. Uh, You you, you haven't heard language like that from the Biden administration. They they see China appropriately as a a rival, a competitor, which it is. But you you can't wish a competitor away. You have to engage with rivals and competitors, and you want to do it in a way that doesn't result in World War III, which is the other possible outcome. Well, that would be quicker than COVID. Oh, sorry about that. (laughs) But uh, uh, we've already lost 400 and some thousand lives here in America. Anyway, the, the 45th president imposed a series of tariffs on uh, what, hundreds of billions of dollars of Chinese imports. I wonder how that has worked out. Uh, what do you know about that? I, I really, I mean, has that helped American manufacturers and, and farms or, or hurt us? You know, the, 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 the final word isn't in on that. Uh-huh. My understanding uh, from reading the business pages of the media is, is that uh, some some companies benefited, some steel manufacturers in this country benefited, but probably more areas of the economy suffered than benefited. Yeah. Certainly uh, farmers suffered uh, considerably, and a lot of other companies uh, th- that rely on Chinese imports uh, in- suffered a lot, and American consumers certainly suffered yeah. because of higher prices. So on balance, it probably hurt American consumers more than achieved any benefits. Well, a lot of us are impressed with uh, President Biden more so than we expected to be, quite frankly. I wonder, you know, he's doing so many, so many good things, I think. I wonder about any kind of break between the good things he's doing domestically and potential problems with foreign policies. I, I wonder about how appropriate it would be to be optimistic with regard to uh, how Biden is going to deal with China. Or is it really, uh, as you say, a big conundrum for him? Well, I, I, I'm pessimistic on this front. Uh-huh. Uh, I worry that uh, because he wants to make progress on the domestic front, he's going to allow uh, hawks, Uh the China hawks, Mm -hmm. to have their way with China uh, to cover his rear, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, And that's that's why I and some colleagues have 
formed a new organization called the Committee for a Sane U.S.-China Policy. Uh-huh. And uh, your listeners can visit our website, Sane U.S.-China Policy, to see w- how we view this issue. And, uh, and t- we propose sensible, peaceful, mutually beneficial solutions to some of the questions you're raising, because we do worry that Biden is going to allow China policy to slip out of his fingers and Mm. turn around and stab him in the back. Mm. The website, so if people just Google sane U.S. China policy, that'll take them there? Yep. Thank you so much, Michael. Let's hope, uh, I'm I'm impressed by Biden so far, and uh, let's hope enough... A lot of pressure is going to be needed, and you can't fix everything right away. I know Americans are like, we want instant solutions to everything, but it doesn't work like that. And uh, if we keep up some pressure and and let him know that uh, people care about uh, avoiding World War III, uh, we can do that. Again, the uh, sane U.S.-China policy. Michael, ORG. ORG. Thank you so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. We'll be in touch again, I'm sure. Uh, It was a pleasure talking with you. Thank you. And now a little bit of current Chinese rock and roll.